But I think the targeted visualization is key. So really understanding what makes something uh, look malignant, what is something that looks inflammatory because there's been a stent in place, what makes something malignant in the setting of PSC. These are all kind of visual targets that you acquire as you start to do more cleangioscopy and as, as you start to see more spectrum of normal and more spectrums of abnormal. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Endocast. I'm your host, Leslie Bishop, and this is episode 23 with our physician guest, Dr. Jennifer Fan from the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Fan, welcome to Endocast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm super excited to have you today. And I know we're going to be talking about spyglass, mm -hmm. but I thought the audience might be interested in getting to know you a little bit. So I'd love to hear how did you get into GI or maybe even medicine and then why you chose GI? I knew from the very beginning when I was four years old that I was going to be a physician. Wait, come on. What? Yeah. I think, you know, when people ask me for Barbies, I was asking for a stethoscope. It was very clear and that I was going to go into medicine. And for the longest time, I thought I was going to be a surgeon, a pediatric surgeon. And then I got exposure pretty early on into GI. And what, it just, what do you mean by early? Like, are we now in middle school? We're now, yeah, that would be really early. We're now probably in undergrad. Okay. I was like, I'm going to be a pediatric surgeon, save kiddos. And then I got exposure really early on into GI, got some great mentors, and then it kind of whisked me away. I always knew in GI I was going to go into interventional. My dad's an engineer. I grew up building oh. things, making things with my hands. That was a pretty nice connection that I wanted to have. Like what kind of things did you build? We would build like trains and like toy planes and he built a lot of like computer boards for big big companies and so he would teach me a lot of that. We would solder all the time, start off with small projects and then became kind of more construction type projects. It was very clear that I like to do things with my hands. Interventional is perfect for that. Okay, that's so interesting because I would almost think you'd lean more towards surgery maybe, but interventional obviously has a lot of that same stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think they say that if you can't see yourself living without the OR, then you shouldn't be a surgeon. And I found myself continuing to look sideways to the endo unit. And I was like, this is a sign. I think I need to be there. And I'm so happy to have made that transition. Tell me about the focus of your practice now. It's obviously interventional, but what stuff mm -hmm. are you focusing on? So I do interventional EUS ERCP. And then I have a practice that's um, growing pretty rapidly for bariatrics. And so I do a lot of ESGs, kind of a combination, all revisions, things like that. And it's nice to be able to offer it to a patient population that needs it a lot. So I do a lot of diabetics pre-post-transplant patients with fatty liver. And so it's a pleasure to be able to be involved in their care. Okay. All right. Well, let's hone in on the ERCP spyglass part of all of that. Let's do that. Okay. So talk to me about your spyglass algorithm. We can do stone management and then you can do stricture management too. I want to hear about both. I think for stones, we have such great toolkits, right? If we have a stone that's manageable with a balloon or a basket, I go to that first. But my practice, there's a lot of referrals. So I actually don't see a lot of small stones. What we get are these big two centimeter stones or those that are wow. more proximal to a stricture pretty quickly. I'll take out spyglass for that. We are lucky enough at, our, at my institution to actually have both laser and EHL. Oh, wow. And being able to have such access to that makes it really easy to open up spyglass, you know, 
take care of that stricture and then go blast at these stones. And if it's a stone that's more than two centimeters, I would rather take care of it once and for all than to have them come back. Okay, how are you deciding between EHL and laser? Some of it is we have a couple endo units running at the same time that are fluoroscopy driven. If one of my partners is using one, I'll use the other. Okay. If a stone, say a stone is about to crown in the duodenum, I don't need to put water to use laser, right? We don't need to submerge anything for laser. That's a great tool to have. But for, again, those crowning stones or those that are really calcified and hard, some of the pancreatic duct stones, laser is really good for that. Okay, a little bit more about the laser and the EHL. Can you just Mm -hmm. walk through your approach to the stones? Yeah, the approach is going to be a little bit similar. The difference with laser is that you have a green light targeting field, so you know exactly kind of where the photon is going to hit. But whenever you you see a stone, you want to kind of drill towards the center. You want to crack it to like the middle earth, right? <laughs> and so you're going to drill towards the center and sometimes the stone will crack. And there's different ways you can either hit the center of the fragments and have the popcorn effect where your electrical energy will actually bounce from one stone fragment to another. There are also times when the stones are in very difficult position in the intrahepatic ducts or kind of in the cystic duct where we also will break stones. And what we want to do there is to try to get away from the biliary epithelium as much as possible and use the energy to be focused solely on the stone. And sometimes we, you know, the angle is not great, but as much as you can to twist your clangioscope in order to get to the center and eventually as it fragments, it starts to become safer if you just hit the middle and get that popcorn effect. Okay. All right. Now back to the spy algorithm. What about for stricture management? So for stricture, man, indeterminate strictures is something that spyglass has a huge need for. Usually what happens is an indeterminate stricture will come and they'll have brushed or done kind of these forcep biopsies, fluoro-guided forcep biopsies. And if you can get a diagnosis from that, great. I mean, most of the time you may get something, but some of the times you get atypical cells are still indeterminate or a negative biopsy and your suspicion is still significantly high. For me, when I have an indeterminate stricture, I actually prefer to go to cholangioscopy right off the bat, but it's not a wrong decision, especially with the resources that you have to do brushings or to do forcep biopsies and use that first and then use cholangioscopy as second. That's a completely fine algorithm as well. How many targeted biopsies, direct biopsies are you taking? I like to do six. There's no data, right? We say four. That's based on a pathologist, but there's no data. There's no studies to show four. I think four is a good amount, but I think the targeted visualization is key. Really understanding what makes something look malignant, what is something that looks inflammatory because there's been a stent in place, what makes something malignant in the setting of PSC. These are all kind of acquired um, uh, visual targets that you acquire as you start to do more cholangioscopy and as, as you start to see more spectrum of normal and more spectrums of abnormal. How many cases do you think it takes to get a good eye for that? That's really tough. It's it's tough to say. There's so many variations, especially if you throw in PSC in there. There's no set number. I can make it up and say 10, 20 cases. But really, it's just having a very low threshold for suspicion and understanding what neovascularization looks like, what meaningful papillary projections look like, what ulcerations look like, what different types of ulcerations look like. Boston has such a great handbook that actually gives you all of that in one pamphlet. And so it's really nice to kind of just have that in your unit and say, 
Well, in PSE, fibrotic PSE, this is what normal looks like, and this is what abnormal looks like. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about resources to help a doctor kind of increase their confidence and competence. That mm-hmm. sounds like one of the resources you might recommend. That yeah. Book. And we've gone through, you know, changes in the pamphlet to bring them up to date as to what people are seeing. And now we have, you know, different types of lighting sources that we can eventually adapt into Spyglass, hopefully in the future that will make it even better for homogeny in terms of how we evaluate what's malignant or not. Okay. All right. You're a liver transplant center. What Mm -hmm. value has SPI added to that? We're high volume. I'm proud to say that Keck did one of the most living donor transplants last year. And we're very proud of that. And we see, you know, whenever you do a lot of liver transplant, you get a lot of strictures. And if we sat through anything from DDW is that what you get post-transplant is variable. It's not just your straightforward anastomotic stricture. You can get ischemic strictures. You can get cast formation um, above these strictures. You can get stone formation above these strictures. And a lot of the times you can't sweep out things proximal to the stricture. You know, patients with PSC post-transplant get PSC, right? They get cancer post-transplant, especially if they have underlying PSC. And we're transplanting so many people that we're seeing patients 10, 15 years post-transplant, right? SPI is really helpful to see what type of strictures these are, you know, be able to treat things that, you know, with lithotripsy, things like that. And so I don't use it all the time as first line for a stricture, but if it's something that looks abnormal, it's so easy to just put a spyglass up there. All right, so with a potential liver transplant patient, what are the considerations for treatment and for diagnosis? For post-transplant patients? Yeah. Very commonly, they'll have a single anastomotic stricture. And at that point, you don't really need spyglass. It's pretty telling on an MRCP and ERCP that there's a focal stricture right where the duct duct anastomosis is. And that's, uh, that's easy to treat with an ERCP, stenting, metal stenting, etc. And there's a whole algorithm for that. But we also know that there's a lot of patients who don't get duct to duct anastomoses. They get uh, rue hepatico J's, right? And there's strictures that's there. There are stones that are formed, and a lot of times we can't get a normal ERCP scope through, but you can get a single balloon or a double balloon and you spy, right? And that's priceless there. We get so many Rue Hepatico J's at USC that we typically will get there with a double balloon and we do almost all the work that we need to do with stones just with the spyglass through the overtube. Okay, and then what about a potential liver transplant patient? Are you doing spy with those patients? If necessary. Okay. If necessary. Sometimes you don't know kind of the etiology of the the cause of the liver liver failure or chronic liver disease. And so if there's anything that's indeterminate for any reason, a filling defect that doesn't make sense, a stricture that doesn't make sense, it's so easy to put a spy glass up there just to see what is happening. And We've had patients where we've had hemobilia unclear etiology. You know, we're getting so many of these exotic cases where you get infections of unclear etiology, previous manipulation from outside hospitals that you don't really know what's going on in the duct. And there's a case in particular where there was a coil that was done for a pseudoaneurysm near the duct and significant pyogenic abscesses were seen in the liver and no one really understood what was happening in the duct. And the only way to understand was to put a spyglass there to see kind of significant necrosis of the duct because of this uh, coiling that had happened. And that patient then was able to be listed for transplant after we put a metal stone across it. It wouldn't have been as straightforward of a diagnosis had it not been for the ability to do spy just to see what was happening. Okay. 
Um, this has actually been amazing and so informational. I'm just wondering if you have any closing comments you want to share about your use of Spyglass. So I think what we are using Spy for now can only be expanded so much more in the future. The things that we may be able to do is really exciting with Spy. And I think I'm hoping that there's going to be more worldwide adoption of it. We would love it that everyone who does an ERCP can do SPY, right? Because of all the things that we can help patients with. I love it. All right. Well, thank you. This has been awesome. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Endocast. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E.bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every case or patient. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote or encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. Thank you.